All right. Good. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Am I on? Yes. Morning, friends. Good to see you here this morning. My name is Matt. If I haven't met you before, this morning we're going to be kicking off a three-week series in uh, in our vision and mission. I'm sharing the the heart of why we planted this church and, and what we hope to see happen in our city. Um, last night, yesterday, last night, there were a bunch of us at um, Sam and Isaac's wedding. It was an amazing day. So those of you who know Sam and Isaac, they got married yesterday. So cute. Those guys are just ridiculously cute. And it was a, it was a wonderful wedding. So um, they're, they're going to be away for a couple of weeks. But um, if you know those guys and love them, send them a message. Um, and congratulate them. It was, a, it was a really beautiful day. We're going to be kicking off in Romans 3 this morning. So if you've got a Bible and would like to go there, head over to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be reading a, a section from 21 to the end of the, um, end of the chapter there. So head over there now. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free. You could take one this morning from our welcome desk as a gift. We'd love to give that to you so that you can read it at home. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to get stuck into God's Word this morning. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we thank You that You are the God who has declared us righteous. We thank You that You've justified us. As we sang in those songs, we thank You that You've redeemed us, that You've made us Your people. We rejoice this morning that we gather here because of what You have done. We pray this morning that You would remind us again of the Gospel of the good news of what Jesus has done on our behalf and then remind us of how that ought to shape every decision, every action, everything we do at our church. And as we reflect on the gospel, we pray this morning, Father, you would impress it on our hearts and make us thankful that boasting would be gone, that we would simply cling to Jesus for what he has done. And we ask this in his strong name. Amen. So if you're um, new, this is going to be fresh stuff for you. But if you've been part of our launch team who was here since January, February, then this is going to be revision for you guys. But wherever you are, um, this is really important. Vision is is very, 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 very important. Um, It's important because if you don't have any direction, if you don't have any vision, if if you're not aiming for anything, you'll achieve nothing, Right? You have to have something that you're aiming for, that you're working towards. And so we've tried to cast a really clear vision about what we want to see happening here at Anchor Church. And so uh, this morning and for the next two weeks, we're going to be unpacking what that vision looks like. And Brian's already shared a little bit of it this morning. But let me take you through it in a bit more detail. Our vision, and vision is simply this, what we see. This is what we see, a church that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. A church that transforms our city. We've got a big vision, a big vision for a big city. We long to see revival here in Sydney that transforms our city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. Every church ought to be on about those two things, making disciples to the glory of God. Making disciples of glory. So that's our mission. A church that transforms the city by making disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. That's our vision, sorry. Our mission, and mission is simply this. How do we get to what we see? 
So our, our vision is what we see, and then our mission is how we do that. And this is our mission. To gather people into rapidly multiplying gospel communities, equipping them to be sent on mission in their city to make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. Gather people together in rapidly multiplying gospel communities. So Brian's already talked about what his gospel community looks like. We've got four of them. We're going to be launching a couple of new gospel communities in the coming months. Um, but we want to gather people into these communities, these families that are all about the gospel. Now we've put the words in there, rapidly multiplying, because we know that as you gather people and relationships deepen, we just want to be comfy and cozy and, and stay with those people. And so we've particularly put multiplication in there because what we're intentionally going to do is send people to multiply out and start new gospel communities across our city. So rapidly multiplying gospel communities, they're places where we want to equip these people to be sent as missionaries to their city. And that happens as we proclaim the gospel, make disciples of Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. Now as we've that's a lot, right? There's a lot of information there. So to try and make that very memorable and clear, we've boiled it down to three statements. In community, on mission, for Jesus. That's what we're on about. In community, about living in community. Those communities are outward looking, missional focused, all for the glory of God, for the fame of Jesus. This morning we're going to look at the gospel foundation to all of that. Right? All of that, means nothing if there is no gospel foundation. You notice there the gospel forms our communities. They're gospel communities, right? That is that we've been gathered together and made family by the blood of Jesus, adopted as his children. These are gospel communities. And you'll notice there that the gospel also drives our mission, that this is a mission not simply just to do good deeds and love our city, but proclaim the good news of Jesus. And so this morning what I want to do is lay a gospel foundation for everything we do. Now, I was supposed to draw you a really cool diagram, so you're just going to have to work with me on this. Imagine a house. The foundation of the house is the gospel. That's where we're going to camp out this morning. The two pillars or the walls of the house are mission and community, and that's what we're going to hit over the next two weeks. And then the roof of the house, the point of it, is the glory of God for the fame of Jesus. Right? So for those of you who are visually minded, can't get words, just picture the house. Gospel, community, mission, Jesus. All right? That's where we're heading. But let me say this. Culture eats vision for breakfast. All right? Culture eats vision for breakfast. I can cast vision and talk about vision until I'm blue in the face. And if we're not doing this stuff... That will be our vision. Whatever we're doing, that will be our vision. That will be the culture that gets set. Culture always eats vision for breakfast. And so this stuff is vastly important, not because I'm excited about it and I read it in a book once and I want to communicate it, but because if we don't do this, then we're going to be doing something else. And it's not this what we're trying to do. So I, I want to share this with you in the hope that we actually do it and start to build this culture in our church. The two questions I want to ask this morning is this. What is the gospel? And you might think, well, that's an obvious one. Give it to me in one sentence, but we're going to dig deep. And the second question I want to ask is, what are the implications of the gospel that we believe for our church? So what is the gospel and what are the implications of this gospel that we believe for our church? I remember um, interviewing some year 12 graduates as 
we were um, trying to get new leaders for our youth ministry a number of years ago. And we had a very formal interview process for these guys. And what we would do is we'd sit down with them and we'd ask them a bunch of questions. We'd give them the questions beforehand. They'd fill in this little questionnaire. And the very first question we asked them is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I remember sitting there interviewing some of these guys and they'd grown up in our youth ministry for six years. They'd heard the preaching. They'd been in Bible study groups. And I remember being shocked at some of the answers. Like people saying, oh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was like, mm, kind of. Is it a bit more than that maybe? Or, or I remember one person saying, the Gospel is the good news. I was like, good news of what? And they were like, Jesus? It's like, yes, you know, we're getting there, right? But it's very important to be able to articulate what the gospel is. What, what is this gospel that we talk about? It's not, it's not just a, a phrase that we use, a, a key word, talk about gospel-centered church. It has to have some meaning to it. And so the question I want to ask is, what is the gospel? And I don't think you get a much fuller explanation of the gospel than in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This paragraph of scripture is, is almost like a, uh, one of those cold pressed juices. You know, there's no water, it's just kale and cucumber and just packed full of nutrients and goodness, right? That, that's what these verses are like. There's, there's big, weighty, meaty ideas in here. And if you're new to the faith, if, if you're new to church, then some of the language here is going to be, you know, we just don't use this kind of language in everyday life. And so I'm going to try and explain it as we go as best I can. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous Welsh revival preacher, said this about these verses. He says, It's no exaggeration to say of this section of, of Scripture that is one of the greatest and most important sections in all of Scripture. So the pressure is on, right, to get this one right. So Romans chapter 3, verse 21. This is what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Quick little recap and context of where um, Paul has been in Romans so far. From Romans chapter 1 verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 verse 20, Paul is trying to build the argument that every single person is a sinner. Every single person has violated God's law, has broken relationship with him. And so he says, the rebel is a sinner. The rebel who knows God's law and has willfully broken it and chosen to worship the creator things rather than the creator. They are sinful. And he says, but you know what? The religious person is also sinful because although they look at the rebel and say, They've broken the law, they point the finger, but they don't realize that they themselves have broken that same law. And so the religious people, the moral people are also sinful and broken. And then Paul says, you know, in fact, even the ignorant are sinful and broken because their conscience 
convicts and condemns them at the same time because they have this sense of right and wrong and they can't even live up to their own standard of their conscience. And so Paul says, everybody, everywhere has sinned. All have sinned. Everybody. Ever. There's no one left out. You notice what he says there? Race, age, gender, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short. That means all two... Uh, 23 plus million people in Australia, all 7 plus billion people on the face of this planet, all the, the estimated 108 billion people that have ever existed have sinned. All people, everybody, ever. And in case you're wondering, that includes you and me. Paul describes sin there in verse 23 as falling short of the glory of God. What does that mean, to fall short of the glory of God? Well, it doesn't mean that we've failed to be exactly like God, as glorious as God, because that would be impossible for us, would it not? What it means is we need to go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 22 to get the meaning. This is what Paul says in chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. To fall short is to exchange God for something of lesser value. So we've worshipped, created things rather than the creator. We were created and meant to reflect like mirrors, reflect the glory of God as his image bearers, displaying his worth as we worship him. And instead we've exchanged that for something of lesser value. And Paul says that's what sin is. And so the the gospel, the, the story of the Bible is really God's way of trying to solve a worship problem, a glory problem. That's what it is. And he solves that problem, we're told here in verse 23, by justifying us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. It's a legal term found in the courtrooms of the day. And it's a formal declaration of a judge as he issues the verdict on a person who has been sentenced. It's the opposite of the word condemned. Justified, condemned, opposite. And so the gospel is God makes you just. God makes you righteous. God makes you right with him. That's what it is. And so what I want to do is explore how he does that. And I want to look at three things. I want to look at the source of our justification. I want to look at the grounds of our justification. And I want to look at the means of our justification, how that comes about. So firstly, the source of our justification is grace. Have a look at verse 23 again. We're just going to be kind of walking our way through the logic of these verses. So verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Our justification, our being made right is all of God's initiative. It's all His work from beginning to end. It's all Him, all of grace. If God were to give us what we deserved, it would be punishment and death and hell. And yet God gives us His righteousness. He makes us righteous as a gift out of His grace. You can't earn this. This is righteousness apart from the law. 
There's nothing that you can do. It's a free gift born out of the gracious heart of God. Friends, that's why, that's why religion is so opposed to the gospel. It's religion that says, if I do this, then I will earn God's approval. Then I will earn my righteousness. Our efforts of self-justification, and they're, they're feeble. They're useless and, and actually they're offensive to God. Because God says, here is a gift and you're saying, oh, I will work it off. Let me pay you for it. Why it's offensive. The source of our justification is the gracious heart of God. Not my effort, not your effort, not our box ticking self righteousness, but God's gift for us. That's where it comes from. Secondly, what is the grounds of our justification? How does God do this? Out of a gracious heart, how does God actually work this righteousness and justification out? And I want to suggest to you three things. Firstly, the redemption in Jesus. Secondly, his sacrificial death. And thirdly, the just character of God. Let's have a look at the flow of Romans uh, 3.23 again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The first Grounds of our righteousness and justification is that word redemption that comes through Jesus. That word redemption is a, is a marketplace word. It's a trade market word. And uh, it means to purchase something back, to buy something back. It's a word that was often used in the first and second century BC to describe the process of what happened when someone would pay the price to, to buy back or redeem a prisoner of war and set them free or to buy back and redeem a slave and set them free. So our right standing with God, our, our justification comes freely to us, but it comes at a cost to God. The price was the body and blood of Jesus to redeem you, to purchase you back, to free us from slavery. And you know what that means? If, if you're a follower of Jesus, one of his disciples, you're a Christian, it means that you are actually owned twice. You're owned once because God created you in his image and likeness, and then you're owned twice because God bought you back from your rebellion and slavery. He paid the price and made you his a second time. That's the, that's the first grounds for our justification. The second is this, the sacrifice of Jesus, and that word that Paul uses, propitiation. So have a look at the flow of Chapter 323 again. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. That word propitiation, we never use that word anymore. Maybe they could find a new word for it but this is the meaning of it. It's a, it's a worship word. It's a temple word. And what it means is to satisfy anger, to appease someone's anger and wrath. It's um, often used to describe the process of the animal sacrifice that happened in the Old Testament, and in particular, the Day of Atonement, where a, a goat or a sheep without blemish would be brought to the high priest, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that animal and confess the sins of the people over it, and then that animal's neck would be slit, the blood would be gathered and, and sprinkled and shed, 
And, and what's happening there is God is saying, blood is shed and my anger at sin is dealt with and satisfied. That's the sense of this word. What it means is that Jesus' death on the cross, his blood that was shed and poured out, turns away the anger and wrath of God at our sin. That's not a particularly popular notion. If you want to grow a church, don't talk about sin and an angry God. Right? Just keep it all positive. But this is the truth of the gospel. This is what the core of the, the message of the Christian faith is. That the problem of our sin, of our rejection of God, is dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous to reconcile us and bring us to God. It's the very core and center of the Christian faith. And if you get this bit wrong, you're going to mess everything else up. This is what Christianity is all about. Jesus takes away my sin. That's the second grounds of our justification. It's the redemption, Jesus purchasing us back. It's his sacrifice, his blood turning aside the wrath of God. And thirdly, the third ground of our justification and righteousness is the character, the just character of God. This is what it says in the second half of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness or his justice because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That is, every sin committed from Adam until Jesus, God has passed that sin over every single time. He gave a temporary solution to it, the blood of bulls and goats. But Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats does not deal with sin properly. It's a bit like this. If you go to the shop and you buy something on your credit card, you go buy a new uh, jacket and you swipe the credit card, you take the jacket home, it's yours, but you haven't really paid for it yet, have you? You haven't paid for the jacket until the credit card bill comes at the end of the month, and you're like, oh, gee, I've got to tear this credit card up. This is, right? And then you pay, for, you pay for it then. And that's exactly what it was like for the people from Adam to Jesus. Every sin that was committed, God passed it over with his credit card system that was eventually paid for in the death of Jesus. And so God's character needs to be preserved. How can he pass over all of those sins in his divine forbearance? Well, it has to be dealt with at the cross. Secondly, you'll notice there that it says it shows his righteousness at the present time so that God can be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. What would God do with our sin? Would he just sweep it under the carpet? He pretend that it's not there? Would he just forgive us anyway because he's a good bloke? That's the kind of guy he is. You know, just, ah, don't worry about it. She'll be right. No, he can't because that would violate the essence of his character. That would make God unfair to turn a blind eye to injustice and sin. And so the cross of Jesus allows God to preserve the perfection of his character. He is fair and just. He doesn't just sweep sin behind his back and pretend it didn't happen. He deals with it in the person of Jesus. That's how God can free us, make us just and righteous and still be just and righteous at the same time without violating his own character. That is the grounds of our justification, our righteousness. Finally, the means of our justification is Let's go back to the start of verse 23 again. Follow it. Follow the logic. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The way a person receives this generous, gracious gift of God is by faith. Now, faith is not blind hope. Faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not believing something that you know is not true. Faith is a deep trust and dependence. Faith says, I can't do this myself, but I know Jesus can. I know Jesus has. And so my trust is not in my perfection, in my goodness, in my effort, but in Christ's effort on my behalf. That's what faith is. Not wishful thinking. This righteousness that God offers us as a gift needs to be received simply by trusting in Him. That's it. Kind of simple, isn't it? Faith. That is the gospel. We can kind of come up for air now, right? You can, whew, that, it's, it's deep, it's meaty, it's heavy, it's weighty. There's a lot of stuff in there. I could probably preach. So Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, preaches through Romans chapter 3 for like a year and a half. And he, sp- he spends 10 pages on the two words, but now. You, you could preach on this forever. But I just want to quickly skim the surface. I know it's heavy, I know it's deep. But what I want to do now is shift gears. We've asked the question, what is the gospel? Now I want to ask the question is, what are the implications of this gospel? Well, what is this? If we believe this message, what does it mean for us as God's people? And what I'm going to do is unpack a bunch of things. And really, as we walk through this section, I'm, I'm very heavily indebted to a guy called Jeff Vanderstelt from Soma Communities. Um, the material that he has presented on this stuff has shaped a lot of our DNA of our gospel communities and our language around community and mission. And so this is not really original stuff to me. It's all borrowed, stealed, stealed, stolen, stealed. It's stolen um, with his blessing, obviously. What does it mean? If we believe this message, what does it mean for us? The first thing I think it means is that we ought to have a gospel definition for church. We ought to have a gospel definition for church. See, if we define church by what we do, it's not a gospel definition of church. So often we define church by what we do. It's defined by our activities. One of the big ones is we gather. That's what defines us. We, We gather. And so that means that you're only the church, the people of God, as you come together. And you can't really be the church as you go and scatter across our city. We define church by the fact that we preach the word of God, or that we pray, or that we sing, or that we administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And all of those things are activities that we do. And if we define our church by what we do, that's not a gospel-centered definition of church. That's a works-based definition of church. And so we need to strive for something deeper than that. We, we do it. In a, personally in our lives? I mean, what, what do we do? Say, oh, hey, I'm Matt and I'm a pastor. We define ourselves by what we do. The, the thing that takes up most of your time is often what defines you. I, I'm, a, I'm an accountant. I'm an artist. I'm a mum. I'm a student. And we define ourselves by our activities, by what we do. But the problem with that is, is it's backwards according to the gospel because we are more 
than what we do. We're far more than just what we do. What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I finish studying and get a job? What happens if my child dies? What, what happens to my identity if those things change? And so we need to anchor our identity in something that doesn't change. We're far more than what we do. Secondly, if I define my identity by what I do, what that says is that I'm actually earning my identity. I'm trying to earn it by what I do. I serve God, therefore I'm a child of God. It's the other way around. God serves me, makes me his child, and therefore I serve him. So we need to allow the gospel to shape our identity as a church. I love the way Ruth opened this service. I'm listening to it with particular ears because all I'm hearing is we're the redeemed people of God. That's it. That's a great definition of church. We are the redeemed people. We are a holy people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his possession. He defines our identity and then he says, then, then go do something. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You see the, the flip? And so I think we do that by asking these four brilliant questions. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I? And what should I do? That's the order it should flow in. Who is God? God is my saviour, my rescuer. What has he done? He has sent Jesus to rescue and save me. Who am I? I am saved. I am redeemed. I am adopted. What does that mean I do? Out of the outworking of that, I go and share this good news with others. That's a gospel identity for church. Who we are shapes what we do. Our, our standing positionally in Christ works itself out practically in what we do. Now you might think, well, it's very subtle. What's the big deal? The big deal is that the gospel comes first. So we need a gospel definition of church. Second implication, if we believe this message, the second implication is we need a gospel identity for church. We've tried to do that by talking in language of redeemed people of God. One of the ways we've tried to do that is to talk about uh, our, our identity as a, as a gathering and as gospel community. So we talk about the fact that we are a family of missionaries. We're a family of missionaries. That's gospel identity. God has called us into his family and adopted us and made us his. Our identity is that we're not insular, inward-looking people. We're outward-looking people because that's the type of God we worship. And so we're missionaries, outward-looking. So we need a gospel identity to who we are. Now on the flip side of that, gospel identity means that we don't define ourselves any other way. It means that we don't define ourselves by comparing ourselves to other churches and other gatherings. We don't look around at the small church down the road and get, we're better than them, we're doing better than them, and seek to build ourselves up by comparing. Or we, we don't look at the big church and go, they must be doing it right. We'll just copy them. We, we don't define ourselves by comparing to other churches. That's, that's a works-based understanding. of We, we identify ourselves by who we are in Christ. That's our identity. Secondly, size is not the metric of our greatness. Size is not the metric of our greatness. Whether we're big or whether we're small makes no difference to our worth and our greatness and our value as a church. 
What makes a difference is Jesus. That's what makes a difference to us. And so every Tuesday morning, I get an email, I get a report that comes into my inbox, an attendance report of the the gathering on Sunday and I open it up and there's this little wrestle that has to happen in my heart every week about the numbers and if they're really big, I'm like, yes. And if they're really small, I'm depressed for the rest of the day. I've I've got to have that wrestle every week. No, no, this doesn't define greatness for us. Jesus does what he has done. That's our identity, not how big we are. But our world measures everything by size. That's the measure of success. Jesus is the measure of success for us. The third implication uh, of gospel identity is this. We're not defined by a subculture. We're not defined by a subculture. And I'm going to get passionate and angry about this one. Anchor Church is not a hipster church. Can I just say that loud and clear? Anchor Church is not a hipster church. All right? that's, a, that's a works-based definition of church. It is. We're not defined by a subculture. As soon as you define us by a subculture, it means we're exclusive, not inclusive. And the gospel is an inclusive message. I'm so sick of hearing the fact that we're a hipster church. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to contextualize our gospel message. All of what you see here is intentional, lighting, design, because we're trying to reach a, a people across our city that are, is hungry for aesthetically pleasing things. This doesn't define us. These are frills to the message of the gospel. And so for those of you who call Anchor Home, the next time someone says to you, what church do you go to? I go to Anchor Church. Ha, the hipster church. This is what you say. You say, no, we are not a hipster church. We are not defined by our subculture. We're defined by the gospel. Jesus makes us who we are, not the clothes we wear, not the style of our gathering, not the music we play. Jesus. Yes, good. All right, so we need a gospel definition of church. We need our gospel identity for church. And thirdly, we need a gospel culture at church. And so I want to read to you a verse from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that talks about the importance of the gospel. This is what it says. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold the word I preach to you, unless you've believed in vain. This is what I want you to get. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel for Paul is of first importance. It's the center, the foundation of everything he does, everything he says. Everything that happens at Anchor, everything that we say, the gospel is of first importance. We didn't make the gospel the roof in our built. The gospel is the foundation. It's of first importance. Secondly, that means that the gospel is the center of every sermon we preach from this platform. The gospel is the center of every sermon we preach. You might notice that I've got a particular pattern as I preach. It's very predictable, isn't it? We're always going to get to the gospel at the end, right? That's intentional. The gospel is the center of every sermon we preach. We believe that Jesus is the hero of every single page of Scripture. We want to make much of Him as we look at these verses. 
We believe that the gospel is the grand narrative from Genesis to Revelation that, that captures every other small story, is, is pointing towards Jesus, is, is branching off to explain the gospel, the biggest story. And so every sermon, the point of every sermon, the center of every sermon ought to be Jesus and the gospel. That's part of our gospel culture. Secondly, thirdly, thirdly, gospel culture means we have gospel-centered worship, corporate worship, gospel-centered corporate worship. This gathering is all in response to what Jesus has done for us. We don't come here and sing and lift our hands and praise God in the hope that that would earn his approval. All of this is a response to the gospel. All of this actually is just following the footsteps of Jesus who worships on our behalf. God accepts his worship as the perfect one that we might be able to stand here and worship God because of what Jesus has done. All of it is in response to the gospel, to the good news. That's why we do the Lord's Supper every gathering. It's the high point and climax of what we do. We're intentional about what we're trying to do with our gatherings here. We, we begin with some community time together. We hear the word, we hear the gospel. Then we remember the gospel as we come and, and eat of the bread and drink of the grape juice. And then we respond to the gospel as we celebrate and worship and praise God. All of that is intentional. Our corporate worship is gospel-centered. It's all about Jesus. Fourthly, gospel culture means that the gospel is the center of both our salvation and our sanctification. The gospel is the center of our salvation and our sanctification. Sanctification means that, that progressive process of being made more and more and more like Jesus. Let me read to you a verse from Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. This is what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Christ Jesus, continue in Him. How did they receive Jesus? Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the Word of God. This is what Paul says. How will they hear and believe unless someone is sent and preach and preaches? that They won't. Faith comes from hearing the gospel. And so the gospel is central to salvation. But the gospel is also central to sanctification. As you received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How did you receive? You heard the gospel. How will you continue? You hear the gospel. Continuing to remind yourself of the gospel. Jerry Bridges, the famous author, said, to, uh, said once in one of his books that he wakes up and he preaches the gospel to himself every morning. Wakes up and he reminds himself of the gospel. Reminds himself of his identity in Christ and then begins his day out of that. The gospel is central for our sanctification, for our progressively being made more and more like Jesus. That's why we often say here at Anchor that the gospel is needed just as much in here and in here as it is out there. We need Jesus every day, just as much as the next person. I remember before we moved to the city, we were living in Mount Druitt. And if you're not familiar with Mount Druitt, it's a housing commission suburb in the western suburbs of Sydney, very low socioeconomic area. And uh, I would often get in my car and drive to work and as I would drive down the road, there would be uh, this, this guy who lived opposite us in the housing commission. He'd be walking 
from the chemist back home to get, he'd, he'd go get his methadone and he'd, he'd walk back up the street and he was messy, he was ridiculously overweight, he would just walk in the middle of the road and wouldn't get out of the way as he was driving down the road. I remember driving past him thinking, that guy needs Jesus, feeling sorry for him. And I felt the Spirit convict me and say, Nate, you, you realize you need Jesus just as much as him. You need Jesus. His sin might be different. There's no worse. You need Jesus just as much as the junkie, as the prostitute, as the Muslim, as the atheist. That's the gospel. It humbles us. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. And so if we believe this message, the gospel message, it changes everything. It means we have a gospel definition of our church. It means we have a gospel identity as God's people. It means we have a gospel culture with what we do. The gospel is the foundation of everything we do at Anchor. It's also the foundation of our community and the content and foundation of our mission. And we're going to look at those two things in the next two weeks. The gospel gathers us as God's people together. The gospel drives us to go and share this good news with Jesus to our city. So we're going to camp out on those two uh, pillars or walls over the next two weeks. But what I wanted to do this morning is lay that foundation of the gospel. Because without it, the house crumbles, the house falls. We're going to do exactly what I said we would do. At the end of our gathering, we're going to remember the gospel. And so I want to read to you a verse from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that says this. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth about how they remember the Lord's Supper. And they do it very poorly, woefully in fact. And so he gives them instructions on how to do it. And he says this, 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And if you realize what this is, this is a moment of preaching the gospel of proclaiming that Jesus has rescued me. Jesus has given me a new identity. Jesus has made me a new creation. And as you eat the bread, take the bread, dip it in the grape juice and eat it, it's a reminder and a proclamation of the gospel, of what Jesus has done. This is a celebration, this moment. And so we're going to do that right now. We're going to respond in worship as the band comes up. We're going to remember what Jesus has done. And then out of that, We're going to worship, respond, and leave this building as his people and go be the church this week as we do that. So I'm going to pray about the band up to lead us in responding. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you have done, your initiative, your grace in making us righteous, in making us just. We thank you that you did that by offering Jesus as a redemption to purchase us back and make us yours again. We thank you that you did that by offering Jesus as a sacrifice that his blood would cover us, would turn aside your wrath. We thank you that this came because you're a just, perfect, and holy God. And right now, Father, we want to receive that by faith. Not by anything that we have done, but trusting, depending on Jesus. And as we come forward and eat the bread and remember what Jesus has done, we want to preach the gospel this morning. That this would be our definition, that this would be our identity, that this would be our culture of everything we do at Anchor. Please do that for your glorious name's sake, we pray.
Amen.